The story has been with me since I was a boy. I remember watching To Kill a Mockingbird and my mother saying, Your grandpa had a similar story. What do you mean? I asked. Your grandfather defended a poor man falsely accused of murder, like Atticus Finch. She didn't go into details. Instead, she pointed me to a collection of magazines and newspaper clippings my family had kept tucked away for decades. Buried treasure, but buried but better than gold. The most priceless artifacts of all, family memories. There I discovered my grandfather's story for the first time, consuming every word of that yellowed pulp with the passion of a kid reading comic books. Hunter Howe Cates, the author of Oklahoma's Atticus. Everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the America of America podcast. As always, I'm Will Milam, and uh, we're going to get started with the show now. Last week, um, I'm recording this on Friday, September 17th. I was uh, I was playing I was playing tennis in the evening, and I saw that one of my uh, college professors had just released a book that he had been talking about writing since I was back in undergrad. So I figured I'd go buy and purchase a copy, which was very, very nice. The book is called The Jewish World of Alexander Hamilton by, by uh, Professor Andrew Porwancher. Um, I've read the first couple chapters, and so far it's excellent, um, but I'll give a more detailed review as I get through the book. Uh, but while I was there at the bookshop, I saw there's a small section of Oklahoma interest books, and I saw this book called Oklahoma's Atticus, and it was about an attorney who fought for an innocent man. And since uh, I'm one very interested in uh, in the law, obviously it's just being someone who's taken the bar exam, and also as being someone interested in Oklahoma things, as someone who runs an Oklahoma history and culture podcast, I thought, well, that sounds right up my alley. So I went ahead and uh, bought it on a uh, on a on spur of the moment, and I read it in two days and decided it was one of the greatest things I've read in a while. It's one of the greatest stories of Oklahoma I've read in a while and that I needed to do a podcast episode about it. And I also decided that uh, because of the the tone of the last couple episodes that we've done, it's pretty important in my opinion that we take a step back every now and then and tell a, a happy story or a story with a happy ending. Um, this story is not so much of a happy ending as it was possible to have an even worse ending in that uh, Great injustice was prevented, but unfortunately, there was another great injustice that wasn't prevented, as uh, we'll get to um, we'll get to hear shortly. But it is a happier ending than some of the uh, some of the episodes that I put out recently. So our story today takes place in 1950s Tulsa. If you've uh, been a semi regular listener at all, you'll probably think back to my ep- uh, to the two episodes that I put out on the Tulsa Race Massacre. And there, I think I give a pretty decent rundown of the general history of Tulsa. So think about that city, but we're, you know, 30 years in the future. Uh, at this point, Tulsa is still a is still the oil capital of the world, and we will get to more details about that later. But um, the, the oil industry in Tulsa is one of the greatest uh, anywhere on earth. 
And that is flooded Tulsa with a lot of money. And it is also flooded Tulsa with a lot of good infrastructure projects. So Tulsa is kind of seen as this American peon of great infrastructure and beautiful buildings and just a great place to be in the most beautiful building or excuse me, the most beautiful city in America. In fact, there was a German oil man who came to Tulsa and who even commented that he thought Tulsa was the prettiest city in the world. And I just got back from Southern Germany. I was shocked to hear that. But for as well as Tulsa's doing on the inside, on downtown Tulsa and, you know, areas near Southern Hills, there is a dark side to Tulsa. Uh, In North Tulsa, off of Northern Yale Avenue, there's a section of slums which are an eyesore to the city officials, but are largely not seen by your normal everyday Tulsans. And it casts a dark contrast to the opulence of the rest of Southern Tulsa. And in these slums of Northern Tulsa live the lower classes, including bootleggers and Cherokees, which includes a couple families, two of whom were the Warrens and the Young Wolves. The curious things about the Warrens were that the Warrens didn't actually have to live in the slums of Northern Tulsa. The father, Mr. Warren, had a good job, and on top of having a good job, also had a good side gig as a bootlegger, a very, very lucrative business in Tulsa at the time, well, in all of Oklahoma. But there they lived, in squalor, in the, uh, in the slums area. And with the Warrens came their youngest daughter, an 11-year-old girl named Phyllis, who by all accounts was a very fun-loving, free-spirited child. And along with their family came extended family, including Phyllis's 21-year-old nephew, Buster Youngwolf. Now, the Youngwolves, being also from the area, had children who had married into the Warren family, even though the Warrens uh, had some indication that they might have been prejudiced against Cherokees. But Buster spent a lot of time with Phyllis, and Buster was a 21-year-old Cherokee man who by all accounts, was hardworking, had uh, had a wife and had a very young child, but had had some recent run-ins with the law that made his employability a bit more difficult. But alas, he and the young Phil Warren girl got along very well. Our tragedy begins in March of that year of 1953, specifically on March 12th. Now, in the neighborhood, it was a well-known dynamic where the adults of the neighborhood would sit on a porch and talk and gossip, Uh, where the children would go off and play on their own. And this seems to have been the normal thing for the night of March 12th of 1953, when Phyllis was uh, off playing in the yard, being accompanied by her nephew Buster, who had seemed to have been intoxicated from a day of drinking. And then later on, the adults retired inside the house. And then as the night went on, as they got ready for bed, the Mr. and Mrs. Warren uh, decided that they, though they did not see their daughter Phyllis, that this was not an abnormal occurrence, that Phyllis was a very fun-loving child and often would go hours, if not days, being away from her family because she was either off spending time with her other family or spending time with her friends. By all accounts, this was not really out of the ordinary. Until the next day when Mrs. Warren woke up and went to check on her daughter and found that her daughter was, in fact, not in her room. Now, even this did not set off many alarms for the family. In fact, her father was rather dismissive, just assuming that Phyllis was off staying with a group of friends. And this is how it would go for a very oddly extensive amount of time until finally the family 
had to come to the conclusion that Phyllis was probably not coming home and that Phyllis was missing and that they needed to call someone and call someone they did, the Tulsa Police Department. The Tulsa Police Department, over the next coming weeks, would set off a search. And unfortunately, as searches can be positive in the first couple days, that positive in the sense that they might find a living person, as time goes on, the likelihood of finding the victim alive or the missing person alive becomes grimmer and grimmer. And that by the time that the search for Phyllis had become several weeks old, that hope seemed to begin to get extinguished. Now, during this time, the police did, of course, interview people who might be connected with the missing person. One of the people that they interviewed was Buster Youngwolf, Phyllis's nephew, who had been playing with Phyllis out in the front yard at 8 p.m. on the night that Phyllis had disappeared. Buster had given an alibi that he was at the movies that night, but had seemed very apprehensive and not very sure of himself when he gave that alibi. But, of course, they didn't have anything to actually tie Buster to Phyllis's disappearance. And so, the search went on to no avail until three weeks later, on March 2nd, Phyllis's father found Phyllis's dead body, not some ways from their home, in a section of brush in North Tulsa. The details are very macabre, and if you have small children listening, I recommend that you turn this off. Or recommend that you send them out of the room. Um, they found Phyllis's body uh, buried crudely under um, a section of brush. Uh, so there was branches and leaves put on top of the body. Uh, this actually would have been more difficult to find if it hadn't been for the Warren's family dog, who, according to Phyllis's father, had led him out to that area, and the dog was actually the one who found the body. The body was found. Uh, decomposing with Phyllis's underwear in her pocket. Uh, and then when the police were able to take the body to the morgue and do a cursory search, not to the extent of an actual autopsy, it was determined that Phyllis was raped and strangled to death with a blue plastic belt that was found around her throat. Now the Tulsa police are switching the investigation from a missing persons investigation to a homicide investigation. In their attempts to only not only find the culprit, but to probably calm down the public outcry in Tulsa, the police turned on their previously interested person being Phyllis's nephew, Buster, who, as we know, uh, was with Phyllis at some point the night that Phyllis went missing. Buster had previously been questioned, if you remember, but not arrested because they had no actual link between him and Phyllis's disappearance. Now, the police were convinced that Buster was the murderer. He was the last one, one of the last people to see Phyllis alive. He had a criminal history, and he also told inconsistent stories. It was clear that Buster was uncomfortable during the questioning, and he originally told the police that he was at the movies that night, though that did not seem to be credible. And the police thought that they had had their man. And soon after the finding of Phyllis's body, Buster was rearrested. Excuse me, not rearrested because he wasn't arrested in the first place, but he was taken for questioning. While in police custody, Buster was basically questioned nonstop for several days with police really denying him rest. He would later say that he didn't get to go to his cell and take his shoes off before he was taken back to be questioned again. 
The cops did offer him opportunities to eat, but Buster being in probably the most po- one of the most stressful situations imaginable declined the food. The police would use tactics very coercively in an attempt to get Buster to confess to the crime, going so far as to imply that Buster's mother would be prosecuted for perjury if she went on to defend her son on the stand, and that if found guilty without a confession, that Buster would go to the electric chair. Further, the Tulsa police implied that if Buster confessed, he would do less time and get out in around 20 years, being that Buster was a new was a new father, that if Buster confessed and got out in that time, he could see his son grow up. So, after nearly five days of very little sleep and very little food, Buster called for his mother in an above conversation. He told her that he was going to admit to the murder even though he didn't do it because it was his, quote, only way out of this, unquote. And that's what he did. Buster confessed to the murder of his aunt, who was 10 years younger than him, Phyllis. Now, what happened next was also a very interesting development in the case because Buster didn't just confess. Buster went so far as to concoct a story about how Phyllis teased Buster about his wife before Buster statutorily raped Phyllis and killed her for threatening to tell his bus, uh, the young wolves and the Warrens about what Buster had done. And this story would go, and this story would also include Buster being taken to the site where Phyllis's body was found, where Buster would basically recreate the killing. Now, this was a new sensation all across Oklahoma and probably in the several states area. Buster was intent on just pleading guilty out in this case, but the judge that he first appeared for refused to put in that guilty plea and insisted he take a public defender. Now, Buster's first attorney he fired, but the second attorney that was appointed to him was a newly was a new Tulsa public defender named Elliot Howe. Howe was an interesting character all on his own because he was not your typical public defender, so much as there really was no such thing as a typical public defender in 1953 because there were less than 100 public defenders in the entire United States. But Howe and Buster were not so different in many ways constitutionally. Uh, Howe was a Creek who had spent time in the same Indian school as Buster attended when he was a young man. And Howe, at one point, was actually the assistant county attorney, but lost his job when the newly, when the newly elected county attorney was a Democrat. Howe was a Republican, and like all patronage jobs, when the other party comes into the county attorney seat, everybody in that previous administration goes out. They get fired. So, to make ends meet, Howe signed up to be a public defender. Now, at this time, being a public defender, though being a full-time job and obviously one of the most important jobs in the criminal justice system, it didn't pay well enough to really count as a single full-time job. And so Howe had to do this on top of other things as a way to put food on his family's table. Now, after being appointed, Howe thought probably like everybody else that Buster was guilty and that he was going to be defending a guilty man and hopefully maybe saving him from the electric chair. But at this point, Buster's gotten some regular food, Buster's been able to sleep on a regular basis, and Buster's mind is beginning to clear. And on April 7th, Buster called Howe to the jail because he needed to talk to him. And Buster was going to tell Howe something that would change the course of both their lives. 
he was going to admit to his attorney that he in fact did not rape and murder Phyllis, that the confession was wrong and that the confession had been coerced and that he was an innocent man. And at this point, Buster was probably the only man in Tulsa who believed that he was innocent, but soon there would be two. Howe soon after was able to use public money to secure his own private investigator and to perform his own investigation into the death of Phyllis, and Howe was able to investigate and audit Tulsa County's investigation as well. Now, Howe's investigation came up with three general conclusions. One, suspects, two, autopsy, and three, alibi. Beginning with suspects, the main problem with Tulsa's investigation of the killing was that Tulsa really didn't investigate any other suspects. They focused in on Buster, and they decided that Buster was guilty and that they were going to get Buster to confess to the murder. Now, this could be for a myriad of reasons, probably a combination of the fact that Buster did tell an inconsistent story, for reasons that we'll get to, that Buster was one of the last people to see Phyllis alive, and it is entirely possible, if not likely, that there was some anti-Indian bias involved in Tulsa's investigation. But Tulsa also looked over things like the fact that there were six registered sex criminals living in the neighborhood, and that Phyllis's father, who found the body near or who found the body, had passed by there many times, and it was very interesting that he found that body on that certain time without finding it any earlier time, and that that was also strange and that the police decided not to look into that. The second point of Howe's investigation was that there was no formal autopsy done. So it actually wasn't, there was no way to confirm Buster's story of how he killed Phyllis, if that makes sense. That Buster said that he killed her that night and buried her that night and choked her to death with that belt that night. But they actually didn't know that. Uh, the body was found there, but they had no idea the timing of death and how long the body had been there because no autopsy had been performed. So there's no way to actually confirm Buster's story. Now, the last and most important part of Howe's investigation was that Buster actually had an alibi for what he was doing that night. See, Buster had lied about going to the movies, but not because he was killing Phyllis, because Buster was on probation for a previous crime. And that Buster had actually been out drinking with his family and friends for his 21st birthday. He lied about that and said that he was at the movies because he didn't want to get sent back to jail for breaking his probation. Now, the problem for confirming that alibi is that his friend, his family, so his father and his other family that he was drinking with, were so drunk that he couldn't, they couldn't actually confirm that Buster was there that night because they couldn't remember anything that night. And that's what they told the cops. But the police, instead of saying that his family didn't really remember what was going on that night or how many bars they went to or who were at these bars, they had his family sign statements that said that Buster was not with them, which is not the same thing. Further complicating matters, Tulsa did not decide to go interview any of the employees or patrons of the bars that Buster said he was at, which are independent ways to corroborate Buster's story. So now... Howe's legal argument is going to rely on that and the fact that the state's biggest piece of evidence, Buster's confession, was not real. It was a false confession, which is very normal, actually, in the realm of criminal law, and that Buster's confession was coerced and therefore could not be evidence used against him. 
and that there was a preliminary hearing on this fact or on this question, and that Howe really needed to get this confession quashed, and that Howe focused on convincing the judge that the confession was inadmissible because it was obtained due to caress, excuse me, duress and coercion. However, Howe failed at this largely on the fact that Buster was actually offered food and that though Buster was lacking a bunch of sleep, according to the witnesses, so were the Tulsa cops. And the judge bought that. So a trial date was set. Now Howe, being one of two men in all of Tulsa who believe that Buster Youngwolf did not commit this crime, is going to have to figure out how not only to win his client's freedom, but probably to save his life. So Howe at this point had done well to show that Tulsa, the Tulsa County's attorney's office and police department had basically railroaded Buster and that their investigation was dangerously flawed, but he had to come up with a better, flashier tactic, and that Howe came up with the idea that Buster was going to take a polygraph test. This would actually be for the second time. Buster took a polygraph test at the investigatory stage, and it came through that Buster's Results were inconclusive that he had knowledge of the crime, which obviously didn't look good on Buster. But of course, this was when Buster had just tried to maintain that he was at the movies and that Buster had not eaten or really slept in five days. That or that is not the condition that you should be in to take a polygraph test. I would also go so far as to suggest that maybe never taking a polygraph test at all is the way to go. So Buster and Hal would go up to the Kansas City Police Department were the great legendary uh, legendary uh, polygraph administrator, a gentleman named Hoyt in the Kansas City Police Department, would administer Buster's polygraph test. And it was stipulated between Howe and the county attorney's office that the results of this polygraph test would not be read out until all the arguments had concluded in Buster's trial. Meanwhile, back in Tulsa, Buster's family is starting to really feel the palpable tension in the city of the trial coming Literally, Buster's mother was run. There was a car on the road near where she was where she was walking that went off onto the curb and went over and hit her and drove off. Ended up breaking her leg, and that later on during the trial, Buster's wife there would be a man who broke into her hotel room and tried to defenestrate her to literally throw her out of the window of her hotel room. People were out for blood for the Young Wolf family. When trial finally came, Howe did his best to establish what he'd already established that the alibi, or excuse me, that the confession seemed to be coerced and given under duress, and also that Buster had a good alibi. In fact, when Howe did his own um, independent investigation, people that worked at those bars that Buster said he was at, employees of those bars, would go on to say that Buster was there that night. But what Howe really needed is he needed something big, something like a game changer that would actually change the course of the jury's consciences to find Buster not guilty. The first big break came when Tulsa, the Tulsa County's attorney, who's who was the prosecutor in this case, uh, decided that he was going to try to destroy Buster's alibi that he was out by showing a ledger from the Tulsa Police Department's uh, files regarding traffic tickets. This is important because Buster's alibi included that he and his father went to go pay a traffic ticket that Buster's dad had gotten that day on April the 2nd. Now, 
that ledger actually showed that the traffic ticket was given on April the 3rd, which if that was correct, then Buster would appear to be a liar and having made up his alibi, which would put all of his alibi in doubt. Now, it was a juror, actually, not not even how, but it was a juror that found and pointed out that the date on the ledger that said that Buster's father had been given a, tra- had been given a traffic ticket on April the 3rd and not April the 2nd had actually been erased originally and rewritten in, and that the original notation that you could still see, because it was erased with pencil, was April 2nd. Now, this had the double effect of not only confirming Buster's alibi, but showing that the Tulsa County Police Department and that the Tulsa County's attorney's office really might have been railroading Buster. They might have really, really wanted this guy to be guilty, even though they didn't have the evidence to prove that. The climax of the trial actually came at the end of both arguments when Hoyt from the Kansas City Police Department came in to give the results of the polygraph test. Now, we know today that polygraph tests are not actually admissible in court as evidence. Uh, There's a myriad of problems with polygraph tests, but in the 1950s, they were seen as this obviously very cool and, uh, you know, showy way to prove if a person is lying or not. So Hoyt comes into the courtroom and everybody is silent. They're hanging on every word that he says. And Hoyt goes on to say that when Buster Youngwolf, under polygraph conditions, said that he did not rape and kill Phyllis and that he had no knowledge of that crime, that the polygraphic test indicated that Buster was telling the truth. How would go on to make Hoyt repeat that for dramatic effect? And at that point, the trial is over. Uh, I think the 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 jurors deliberate for less than two hours, which seems to actually be a long time considering the weight of evidence, uh, the weight of evidence um, against conviction. But the jury did come back and, of course, find Buster not guilty for the crime of the rape and Millis murder of Phyllis. And this was obviously in a triumphant moment for Hal and a very humanizing and obviously great weight lifted for Buster Youngwolf and the Youngwolf family. Um, and it seemed by this point that Tulsa, the citizens of Tulsa had changed their mind that they realized that this young man, for all of his faults and for all of his flaws, had not been guilty of the crime of which he was accused and that justice had won the day. Now, this is when I say that this is a happy story. It's a, it's, it's a much happier story than the end of To Kill a Mockingbird, where unfortunately Tom Robinson dies. Well, Tom Robinson is found guilty of a rape he did not commit and eventually dies when getting shot trying to flee the prison. In that way, this is a happy ending. Um, this is uh, Tulsa's To Kill a Mockingbird with a happy ending in that an innocent man did not go to the chair and an innocent man did not go to jail for a crime that he did not commit. Now, of course, we don't want to overlook the fact that there was a rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl, which is obviously one of the greatest injustices that a society can bear. Further, Phyllis's killer was never caught. Now, in Cates's book, he writes that when the private investigator and Howe were doing their own preliminary investigation, that they had actually come up with who they thought had committed the murder, though they never actually gave this name out. They never gave it to the police, and the police never made any more arrests. Now, that is a mystery story that I that I I would really like to read. But for now, I think that we can just be glad that justice prevailed and that an innocent man did not die for a crime he did not commit. And with that, 
we're going to end this story of Oklahoma's Atticus, or uh, as we could say, To Kill a Mockingbird in Tulsa. Now, um, my research for today was almost entirely done through Hunter Howe Cates' work um, with his book, Oklahoma's Atticus, uh, through Bison Books. Um, it's very, very good. Um, Mr. Cates is a, uh, he's a journalist by trade, so his, his writing skills are obviously uh, built like a journalist, which means the book eminently readable. Um, the actual written portions are about 200 pages. Um, it's a very quick read. It's a very fun, obviously, well, not fun, but, you know, uh, in the way that true crime is, uh, it's enticing to read. Uh, that is, I got my copy from Commonplace Books in Midtown, Oklahoma City, and I imagine it's probably available somewhere online, though. Obviously, if you have the opportunity, I would tell you to go into an independent brick-and-mortar bookstore and purchase it there. So I recommend you do that. Um, spooky season. Uh, October is almost upon us. Um, we're going to have one more episode until October. Over the course of October, I plan on doing ghost stories or um, bringing in mysteries in the paranormal of Oklahoma because, as you can tell by now, Oklahoma is a very weird place. So this will be a great opportunity to do that. Um, if you have anything that you would like to hear about or if you have, if you just have a story to tell, um, feel free to write it up and send it to me at ChautauquaReview.com or ChautauquaReview at gmail.com. That's C-H-A-U-T-A-U-Q-U-A review at gmail.com. Um, if you have any other comments, suggestions, or questions, please all, also feel free to email me there. And uh, with that, I'm Will Milam. This is the America of America podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.